be reading this morning from 2 Kings chapter 5 from the ESV version. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of, this, of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of, of Israel, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But... When Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he said to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father... It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Verse 15, then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when the master goes into the house of Remon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Remon. When I bow myself in the house of Remon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. Hear me? 
All right, here we go. Well, welcome to Grace Life. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, worship team. Everyone always wonders, wonders what's going on. We're not in Romans. Uh, well, I finished chapter 10. That's one thing. Usually when I, I pledged when we were going through this, uh, that when we got to the end of the chapter, we would take a break and maybe go to the Old Testament. And I didn't do that. I just jumped right into chapter 10 and went through verse 4. And I thought, you know what? I need to I need to go to the Old Testament and give everybody a break. Maybe I need a break. And the second thing is, this next section, full 13 verses, there's some difficult interpretive challenges in there. And just to be honest, just to be real, the sermon wasn't ready to preach. You know what I mean? It's still in the oven. So uh, those of you who cook, you know, if you take it out early, you do the toothpick test and it's still, uh, the, the cake clings to, what is it? If it clings to the toothpick, it's not. So anyway, the sermon clinged to the toothpick. It's not ready yet. So, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll be back in chapter 10, and we'll get through some of that passage, Steve. I don't know if we'll get through all 13 verses. And the other reason is, um, this, this passage in the Old Testament really, I think, illustrates what we're learning in Romans 10. God marvelously, surprisingly rescues people who have nothing to offer Him. Aren't you glad? That's the gospel. God rescues people. God saves people. God saves, let me, let me say it as bluntly as I can. God saves sinners who have nothing to offer him. That's demonstrated here. And here's the other thing that's demonstrated as our motto. We're the insiders who exist. For who? For whom? For the outsiders. There's a little servant girl who, the only hero in any story in the Bible is Jesus. But there's some honorable mentions too, right? I say that as a man. And this little girl, you know, the two main characters emerge in the first paragraph there. One is a mighty man of valor, and and the other is this little no-name girl who was captured in a raid in Israel. And if it weren't for her, the story wouldn't be here. She was an insider who, instead of growing embittered and resentful and hateful, and think, my master who captured me and did God knows what to my mother and my father and my siblings, he has leprosy, good for him, I hope he rots. No, she said, you know, there is a prophet in Israel that could heal him. She's the insider for the outsider. And that's really what Romans 10 talks about. We have the responsibility, how shall they hear unless a preacher is sent, right? So those two things, God saves people who have nothing to offer him. And we have a responsibility to be his messengers, to be his agents, to go to the ends of the earth and broadcast this message, share this good news. Those two things are are demonstrated here. So let's pause and pray, and then we'll jump into this text together. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that we have your word that we can know your will, that we can see who you are. You have revealed yourself to us. You have stooped down. You have condescended, Lord, and you have explained yourself in a language we can understand. Thank you for sending your Spirit who not only wrote the Word of God, but who attends it, who interprets it for us, who's our resident teacher. He must open our eyes and illuminate our minds and hearts. We know that there are treasures here that you want us to cherish and be enthralled with. They're here. They exist. You must open our eyes to help us see them. Help us to see the marvelous things in your word, God, today together. I pray that this story wouldn't just be a a narrative, Lord. We would see ourselves in it. We would see that really at our core we are all helpless. Helpless lepers, Lord, unable to, to cure ourselves. And we're totally, absolutely, and completely at the mercy of a gracious God. I pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Naaman was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. What is God showing us here? Well, I think leprosy is a picture of, of what sin does. 
Alex Garland wrote a best-selling novel when he was 26 years old. That was his first novel, and it went global, as they say. It was in the 90s. That's when I was a teenager. And so he was, uh, he, he was a Gen Xer. He kind of represented the, a key voice for people like me. We felt kind of disillusioned and adrift and restless, and we were trying to find our way. We were too young to be baby boomers, too old to be millennials, so we were kind of adrift. We were restless. We were, we were searchers, man. We were searching. And he wrote this novel, and it resonated. Now, look, as, as I'm, not, I'm not recommending the novel. You know, I use illustrations from every wake and, uh, of culture that I can. I was an unbeliever. He wrote this novel. It's not a Christian novel, but it, the, the story that he weaves uh, in that book is just interesting to me. And it sold, without any publicity, sold over 700,000 copies within the first year or two. And it was translated into 25 languages. So just to put that book in perspective, in the 90s, okay? His first novel, he was 20-something years old, and it went global. Well, he based the novel on his own travels across Europe and the Philippines. Alex, was a, he was a backpacker, and he was talking about kind of backpack culture, the searchers in this novel. He loved to travel, especially backpacking, and he loved remote, exotic places, especially islands. He was looking for utopia, kind of this this perfect, peaceful place, and that's what his novel is all about. It centers around a young, enthusiastic backpacker named Richard. Richard is bored with his life. See, they had me already with the opening paragraph (laughs) when I was a teenager. Richard's bored with his life, and he longs for escape. He's looking for this pure, unspoiled paradise that's untouched by trouble, by pain, by conflict, a place that's, that's uncursed. It's raw, it's, it's uncommercialized beauty. It doesn't have all the, the trappings of the tourist culture. It has adventure, no smog, no pollution, freedom from the busyness of the world. So he's seeking something that all of us can really relate to, isn't he? He's, he's talking about this peaceful place that's uncursed, this utopia. Everyone's looking for it. Well, Richard meets a guy who seems to be going crazy, And this guy ends up taking his own life, but he leaves behind for Richard a map of a secret hidden beach. Now, it's funny, man. In the book, the guy who had been there and who left a map was going crazy, and he took his own life. So maybe that should have been a little hint to the reader. (laughs) Beware of this paradise, right? But Richard was seduced by the opportunity, so he picked up the map, and he follows it. And sure enough, he discovers what he thinks is this hidden paradise, White sand, coral gardens, fresh waterfalls, this small elite community of 20-somethings just living it up, just living it up. They have a, they've shut off the outside world, and they're living a life of, of recreation and leisure and pleasure. It's this village paradise on an exotic beach. They have built bamboo huts for themselves. They divide up the labor. These people build. These people fish. These people cook. And all the while, they rest and play. So Richard's finally found it. He's finally found this elusive search that everyone is on, this hippie oasis, this beautiful hidden escape from all the troubles of the world. So they welcome Richard into their family. There's always a no vacancy there, but because he has a map and they're scared that their location will be revealed, they welcome him into their community. And that's when things get really interesting. This elusive hidden oasis, elite beach paradise, reveals its true colors. It turns out it's not as unspoiled as it first appeared, and this is where I think that the author struck a nerve, because you see there's people in this paradise, (laughs) and wherever there's people, there's problems. 
Isn't that true? Wherever there's people, there's problems. Colliding idols, there's rivalries, there's tensions. On this island, he found jealousy, he found strife, he found conflict, deceptions, conspiracy, betrayal, even murder on this island. And it's not just that Richard found this paradise lacking, uh, it, it wasn't that it wasn't enough. No, that's not it. The problem was that there was fundamentally something wrong with it. All the people who had gone there to escape their problems, guess what they brought with them? Their problems. Can't escape your problems, ladies and gentlemen. It clings to you, kind of like leprosy, doesn't it? So Richard tries to leave, but he barely escapes with his life. And in the end, he's happy to leave that cursed place behind. The grim reality is that his escape turned out to be a prison of his own making. He brought his own troubles. Pretty soon he was bored with the regime there, and he wanted adventure. He wanted excitement. It's one, one pivotal point in the novel where he's, where he's starting to see the trouble and he introduces some of it, of his, some of the trouble of his own, and he says everything had gone wrong, or had it gone right. So in the novel, it took, two, it took five years for this beach paradise to crumble from within. But you know what? In the, real, in, in the real story of humanity, it only took two chapters, didn't it? It took two chapters for this paradise to crumble and be destroyed from within. And here's why I tell this story about this passage that we're in, because we're really, if we're honest, ladies and gentlemen, aren't we all really just like Richard? We're all searching for this paradise, for this exotic place where there's no problems, where there's no trouble, there's no colliding idols, there's no drama. Aren't you tired of drama? <laughs> we think we can find a place where there's no drama, but the problem is, we got enough drama swirling in our, in our heart, don't we? And we bring that with us. We can't escape ourselves. It's like trying to outrun your shadow. You can't do it. You can't do it. No such place exists down here. Because I've looked. <laughs> no church exists like that. No home exists like that. No business exists like that. Listen, no relationship exists like that. Anybody found a perfect relationship? Yeah, until the honeymoon, right? <laughs> There's no such thing as uncorrupted, unstained paradise. That was Genesis 1 and 2. So, just a few points here today from this story. Number one, sin ruins everything. <laughs> I'll just say, or I could say sin stains everything. Sin, uh, the slime of sin and Adam's rebellion covers up. There's lots of ways you could say it. Sin ruins everything. God wants us to see how ugly, how hideous, how disgusting and vile sin us. He knows us. God knows us, and he knows we're visual learners. That's one of the reasons I believe that we have stories like this, narratives in the Old Testament. See, God could tell us that we're vile and that we're corrupt and that everything we touch gets polluted. He could tell us that, and he does, but God also shows us that. He demonstrates that. That's what we see with Naaman. Naaman was a mighty man of valor. Naaman's got it all. We'll talk about that a little bit later, his station in life. But... <laughs> That's what the text says, literally. Naaman was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And that's really, in a nutshell, the story of humanity, right? Tommy Clayton. <laughs> Tommy Clayton. This, this, I don't know what you would say. This sounds so weird to say. Just this cool, amazing dude. But he was a sinner, right? I mean, that's, that's, everyone's, that's everyone's tagline. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a sinner. Naaman was a stranger to God's grace. He's a stranger to God, period. He's a pagan. He's an outlaw. He's, a, he's an outsider and an idolater, and he's a sworn enemy to Israel. Now, listen, leprosy is an illustration of sin. 
Leprosy is a terribly vile disease. It was lethal in the Old Testament, the form that it took, and it was contagious, and it was a death sentence. If you had leprosy, you were a walking parable of death. You were unclean. You couldn't touch people. You couldn't go to the temple to worship. In fact, if you got near anybody, you had to put your finger over your mouth and yell out unclean. There would be a terrible stigma, social stigma attached to leprosy. In fact, you were put outside the camp, outside the city, outside the gates, and you were relegated to the valley of the lepers. You, couldn't be, you, you, weren't even, you weren't even viewed as a human being. The Pharisees said when a leper got near them, they would throw rocks at them. Those are the religious people. That's how they treated a leper. And God gives us this picture of leprosy, I believe, as a supreme symbol of moral depravity. It was revolting to people. And I think one of the reasons he does this is because we, we have to face who we are at our core outside of Christ. You have to look at it, and it's disgusting, and it's vile, and it's gross, and it's revolting, right? But you have to look at it. When we lived in California, Sarah and I, we lived in an apartment when I was going to school. We got to know all of our friends, and there were a lot of seminary families there, and they all had little kids that were growing up together. And one day, our neighbor downstairs, a little girl ran up and was beating on our door. And Wade's like, oh my goodness, that's rude. You know, that's what I was thinking. She was beating on the door. And I went to the door and I opened it and she said, and she was breathing really hard. She said, my mommy is hurt very badly. And she said she needs an adult. And I was like, Sarah? <laughs> so Sarah ran downstairs and she was down there for a few minutes and she came back and her face was just ashen and white. And she said, I gotta, I gotta take this lady to the ER. And I'm like, go, and the girl can stay with me. No, she, she went with them, and she came back a couple hours later, and I said, what in the world happened? She said she cut her finger off, and she had wrapped it in a, a bloody shirt, and she said, Sarah, I know it's bad. I know it's really bad. I don't know, I don't know how bad it is or if I need to go to the ER, and I can't look at it. She said, will you look at it with me? And my wife, <laughs> if you know Sarah, she hates that, but Sarah grabbed her and hugged her, and they, they were crying and she prayed with her and she said let's look at it together and so she unwrapped it and Sarah said they both just and she said we're going to the ER so sin is kind of like that you know it's 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 bad things aren't quite right with me something's off we listen guys it's so easy to live in 2023 and to look around and say man there's something wrong out there isn't it easy to do that and then start naming what's wrong and who's wrong and what your solution is to fix that wrong, right? We can do that. There's something wrong out there. There's something wrong around us. And, and even to say there's, there's something wrong amongst us. There's issues and problems in the church. There's this scandal or that scandal. Or, and then we offer our solutions. The hardest thing to see and to confess is that there's something wrong within us. But I don't really want to talk about that. That's not interesting. That's not pleasant. But you know what we got to do, ladies and gentlemen? We got to unwrap it together and take a look so that then we know this is serious. Serious. This is, we need help, <laughs> right? <laughs> Until you unwrap the wound and look at that wound, <laughs> you don't know. You need, you need help. You need outside help. You can't fix this. You can't put that finger back on. You're broken, irreparably broken. You need a cure that's outside of you. There's nothing you can do about it. Sin makes you unclean, defiled, cursed. It's a walking death. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't escape it. You can't rid yourself of it. You carry it around with you, this thing, and it clings to you, and it defiles you. 
That's true of people. It's true of places. Look, no matter where you go, you're going to find trouble. There's no such thing as paradise down here. I've looked. There's people, we say this to to people looking for churches all the time. Like, I went to this church, but da-da-da-da. I went to that church, and da-da-da-da. And look, there's some real problems at churches. Some of them I wouldn't even consider churches, and some of the leaders there may not be qualified. And you shouldn't be there if you're not in a position to affect change. But all that aside, some people just have petty little quabbles with churches, and they're looking for the perfect church. And the funny saying we have is, well, look, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because there is no perfect church. The church is like a hospital for for recovering sinners that are finding their, their new identity in Christ, and then they can turn around and help others who are in the ER, right? So that we can get better together. There's always a fly in the ointment. There's always this gnawing, troubling, perplexing problem eating away at us. We know that something is not quite right within us. And the Bible says that thing is sin. We we cover that so many different ways in Romans. Because of one man's act, Adam, sin entered the world. And with it, death. And death spread to all men because all sinned. Man used to be whole. There was nothing lacking when... We were created in the garden. There was perfect shalom, as Cliff preached. Shalom, shalom. There was peace with God. There was peace with others. There was peace with the creation. There was peace within ourselves. And then sin came. You know what sin does, ladies and gentlemen? It separates you. Sin defiles you. It corrupts you. It stains you. It pollutes you. It breaks you to pieces. And it separates you. It separates you from God. It separates you from people. It separates you even, you might say, psychologically, if you want to use that term, or theologically, from yourself. You, You... You come apart. Sin makes you into a beast, an animal, a monster, something hideous, like a jackal and hide. And it's lethal. Sin enters and it robs us of wholeness, of fullness, of joy, and peace. Sin is like this fatal leprosy that affects us. And it brings with it sorrow and blight. It's revolting. What about you? If we could get real for a minute. What utopia were you looking for in your life? What, what elusive, idyllic place that you thought, whenever I find this, then finally I'll have this peace that I've been looking for my whole life. For a lot of people, it's when I can finally move out and be out from under the authority of my parents. Man, there's where the freedom is. That's the good life. I'll be on my own. I'll have my own bank account that's empty, Right? I won't have to answer to anybody, my own rules, no curfew. (laughs) We think, when I get there, that'll be it. And how long does that take, ladies and gentlemen, when we move out? To find like, uh (laughs) uh-oh, trouble. There's trouble in paradise, right? Myself followed me. Maybe the problem wasn't my parents. Maybe it wasn't my siblings. Maybe home was a lot more idyllic than I ever realized, or maybe it's, it's to say when I finally start my career, when I finally get that degree and I start my career and launch my real interest in life where I can impact lives and change the world, then that'll be it. Then I'll be satisfied. But what happens? We're not. <laughs> you know, there's trouble at your work too. There's trouble, at, there's trouble in your career. Like that leprosy finally clung to you so tightly, you couldn't shake it. Or then we say, you know what, I don't know what, I'll find true love. I'll find a romantic interest and in, in courtship and marriage, and then finally we'll start our own family. I won't be lonely anymore. 
I won't be unhappy anymore. And then you figured out, oh, marriage is just when two sinners say I do, right? That's just two recovering sinners joining together and your problems get multiplied. And you need a lot of grace. And it's abundant and it's sufficient, right? But your marriage maybe isn't the paradise you thought it would be or that somebody told you it would be. Or you think, when I finally have kids. <laughs> Short point, right? And look, guys, kids, kids are a treasure from the Lord. Amen? Psalm 127. Happy, happy and troubled is the man or woman who has his quiver full, full of them. <laughs> No, kids can bring heartache and pain. Of course they can, just like adults. Mommies and daddies can. Or maybe you think, when I start my retirement, man, when I finally get that nest egg. and I mean, I could go on. When I finally get that house paid off. When I finally get a hobby. When my health gets where I want it to be. Or when I lose 10 pounds or gain 10 pounds. Listen, I was thinking of this when I, when I was finalizing this sermon this morning. And I think about it every week, ladies and gentlemen. I'm coming up here to preach. And this is not a large church by any stretch. But even a, a church this size, I think all the heartache that's represented here, all the people that have came to church this morning, and you are so utterly dissatisfied with this thing in your life. And the Bible has us pegged. The Bible is so ultimately relevant to our life. Maybe some of you came today and you have just perplexing apprehension and anxiety. And may, may, maybe there's a name to it, or maybe there's not. Maybe it's just really an elusive you're just fearful and you're nervous and you're anxious or you're sad and you're depressed and you have no reason why. Or maybe you came this morning and you're angry and you're bitter about this thing going on in your life. And man, the Bible speaks to that. There's this idyllic paradise utopian search we're on, but everything down here is just covered, Spurgeon said, with the slime of Adam's rebellion. That's why, you know, legislators and Congress and philosophers and existentialists and politicians and even sometimes religious people and theologians, we all get together and we think, man, we're going to change this or change that and then everything's going to be okay. No, it's not. It's not. That's what theologians call over-realized eschatology. Until Christ returns, friends, things are going to be broken down here. Broken until Christ comes and restores everything. We forget that. I think evangelicals forget that so often. We've got, we got creation, fall, and then personal redemption. And we forget the best news yet is restoration. Christ is going to come and he's going to redeem and restore everything. All creation. The mountains and the trees are, of the field are going to clap their hands. Romans 8, we talked about this. All creation groans under the, under, like, like the, the, uh, a woman in delivery, like birth pangs. Creation's groaning, longing, waiting, eagerly hoping for Christ, for our creator, our king, to come back and fix everything. We can't fix it. We've tried. All we do is make things worse so often, right? C.S. Lewis said this once, Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. If love is to be a blessing, not a misery, it must be for the only beloved who will never pass away. You know, he met a girl named Joy and married her, and she got cancer and died within three years. And he wrote that. U2 was the first band that I ever paid attention to the lyrics. I was on a tractor and a farm, disking up a 40-acre field, and this song kept coming on, and I loved the beat. And then I actually started listening to the words, and I had to have been 12, 11, 12, 13. And here, let me read the words from this song. I'm not going to sing it, so don't, don't try to get me to sing it, Okay. I have climbed the highest mountains, 
I have run through the fields only to be with you. Only to be with you. I have, no, I'm not going to do it. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, these city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Those, as a 12-year-old kid driving a tractor, I thought, this musician, this artist has like parsed my soul. How does he know that I've been feeling that my whole life? Interesting, isn't it? Still in that, they don't get the answer in that song. It's funny, Bono calls that a gospel song. There's no gospel in that song. But there is a diagnosis. It's like, hey, I feel what you feel. We're all unhappy. We're all unsatisfied. And then the song's over. It's like, don't leave me hanging. Come on. Well, here's the answer right here. It's here. Sarah and I watched the documentary about, uh, I don't remember what it was about, to be honest. But there was a, <laughs> she picked some of the dumbest shit. No, I'm just kidding. There was a young, strikingly handsome man in a tailored suit that was being interviewed at one point in this documentary, and he worked in this big financial firm in Manhattan, and his day came, he was offered the position of a junior partner, corner office. He was offered, and he said this, he said, I went back to my office, I locked the door, and I wept, and then I went and tendered my resignation, and the the interviewer asked him why, and he said because he knew that he'd be trapped forever if he accepted it. He said, I did not want to become the man who just offered me that promotion, so I left the company. And I think he like went and bought 40 acres or something and disked up the field and listened to you 2 I don't know what he did, but anyway. Jim Carrey said this once, I wish everyone could get rich and be famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they could know that's not the answer. <laughs> he was a mighty man of valor. I mean, could you imagine being right-hand to right-hand man of the king, you're a mighty man of valor, you're a VIP, you've got all this prestige and honor and dignity, but you're a leper. As a preacher, it's sometimes hard to, to apply passages like this to people that are out there sitting in the seats. First, because we naturally resist it. I mean, really, do you want to associate yourself with leprosy? <laughs> it's kind of offensive, isn't it? But listen, my friends, we are prone to trivialize the gospel message, which tells us that Jesus came to rescue sick, broken, helpless, hopeless people like us. We tend to trivialize the gospel message because we are prone to trivialize our sin. In other words, we're no longer astonished and gripped by what Jesus did for us because we haven't unwrapped that bloody rag and looked at, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm in a bad way. I can't patch this together. So that's the, that's the first point. Point number two is that sin levels, levels everyone. Let me just read the very first part of this again. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So sin, we, we say often the cross, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? And that, that's another way of saying sin levels everybody. It doesn't matter what side of the tracks you were born on, you got this problem of the leprosy of sin clinging to you. It doesn't matter. It's not, sin is not blocked by cultural barriers. It's not blocked by racial barriers, by age barriers, by gender barriers, by social barriers or of any kind. It doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. You got the same problem every other human being in the world has. 
you are in Adam. You are fallen. You are a sinner by nature. You are a sinner by birth. You're a sinner by choice. We are born, ladies and gentlemen, with our feet running away from God as fast as our legs can carry us, all of us. That's true of every single person here. I guess you could say sin is kind of like bed bugs or fleas or lice. They, they don't care. They're after one thing, your blood. They don't care what your paycheck is or if you have a Persian rug in your living room. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It says that there were many lepers in his day in the land of Israel. If you remember, leprosy was this gross, disgusting disease that slowly killed its victims. It was, it was considered a curse. You had rotting flesh. Often, if you've seen pictures of the old kind of leprosy, I think today it would be Hansen's disease, what they actually have a cure for. But back then, there was no cure, and it was contagious, and it was lethal. You would see old pictures of fingers just burrowed down to the nubs or entire hands that were just like this, and they were gnarled up. I mean, it was disgusting, and it was, it was revolting to see a leper. Because leprosy, you can't feel anything. It makes you, did you know that? It takes away your ability to feel pain in your extremities. Now, if you're like me when you first heard that, you're like, well, man, that's good. That'd be great. It would be awesome to not feel pain, wouldn't it? I mean, you touch the stove, and it's, it's, it's red hot. And then you're like, oh, that's hot. Well, good, man, no pain. No, that, that, but that's the problem. You touch the, the stove, and you don't feel anything, and then you smell something. And you look, and half your hand's on fire, right? That's what leprosy does. So people, you could do something as simple as rub your eye and blind yourself as a leper. I read accounts of people who were over leper colonies, and one guy told the story about a man that stuck a, a key in a rusted lock and turned it, and he, he like tore his finger off because he couldn't feel the key wouldn't turn and he wouldn't feel you you could take a hot you, you could take hot water and a wash rag and wash your face off and it'd be scalding hot and you burn your not know it it's terrible that's why people rub their extremities off their fingers are gone their toes are missing their hair falls out you would look like something between Gollum from Lord of the Rings and something from Walking Dead if you had leprosy your hair would be falling out your flesh would be all rotted and itching it was horrible like a zombie Took away your body's ability to feel. And you would be the epitome of unclean. It's interesting that the prophet Elijah doesn't say, I can cure you. He says, you can be made clean. Because that was what leprosy really represented, was moral decay. You were unclean. Sure, you had a disease. Sure, you were dying. But the worst thing about it was just the, the stain and the corruption and the defilement. You couldn't be around anybody. If you had a wife, you couldn't hug her. If you had kids, you couldn't kiss them on the cheek. You couldn't go to the temple and worship you were rejected, you were banished, you were exiled forever from society as a leper. You were a walking curse. Even when you came with invisibility, as I told you earlier, people would throw rocks at you and you had to warn them out loud, just in case they didn't see you or smell you, they would know there's a leper nearby. Well, Naaman was the leader of the Syrian army. He was a commander. He was in a very prominent position. He was rich. He was powerful. He had authority. He had pomp. The very name, Naaman, probably sent fear into the hearts of his enemies. He would be the leader of all these raids that they would go out. He was basically a terrorist, Naaman was. And one of these raids, they went out, and this young girl, they probably killed and plundered. And you can imagine all the things they did to her family. And then they saw her, and they said, hey, she'd be a good slave. Let's take her. So they captured her, and she went back, and she served him. But they were ruthless. 
So think about this. You know, we talk about the insiders for the outsiders. So Naaman was a Gentile, okay? He was a pagan. He was a terrorist. He was also a leper. You can't be any more of an outsider than that, can you? He was an outsider. He was a stranger to God's grace. Do you see the message here, ladies and gentlemen? There's no such thing as spiritually elite, really. We all have the same issue. The ground is level. Sin ruins everything and sin levels everyone. He held favor with the Syrian king. He was a great man, social standing and importance. But it didn't matter. He still had a problem. I read a book years ago. John MacArthur told me about this book. Paul Johnson wrote it. and It was called The Intellectuals. And he wrote a short biographical chapter on each of the members who were the most influential framers of Western thought. There would be existentialists, philosophers, politicians, uh, authors, even some religious people, ideological leaders. And I read that book and it blew me away. Because the most interesting thing about that list of people was how vile they were. These were the people that shaped and framed and molded the way we think about uh, democracy and Western civilization. These were the men that laid out like, here is the way that a society becomes great. Here's the way that a culture works. Here's the way that a nation can govern itself. And these men couldn't even maintain their wedding vows. These men were addicts. Some of them were just absolutely hopeless. You would read this book and some of these men, their character, it would leave a black mark on a piece of coal. Sin levels everyone. Every rank and every file of society, the poor, the rich, men and women, sin has left its mark. Whether you're educated or not, whether you're privileged or not. And listen, man can't deal with this problem. There's nothing we can do. We're hopeless and we're helpless, just like a leper would have been. For all the things that Naaman had going with for him, he had one thing. He was dying. He was a leper. The world is trying to get rid of leprosy, the sin of leprosy, but it still clings to us. Here's point three. Many, most, will miss the cure. Many, or you could say most, because Jesus says that, doesn't he? Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there go therein. Narrow or straight is the gate that leads to life, and there are few who find it. There are few who find it. It's there. It's there. It's marked. We, we live in ignorance. We, we talked about this in Romans. What, what does it say in Romans about the, the, nation of, the nation of Israel as a whole? When Christ the Messiah came, they rejected him. They stumbled over him. Why? Because Paul says... I give them, he says, I give them credit. They have a lot of zeal. They're fanatics, but they're zealous in ignorance. They're ignorant of the righteousness that God provides in Christ. And that, that could be stamped on the whole world. This sin of leprosy clings so tightly to us. It's such a part of who we are. We can't separate it. We can't escape it. And there's a cure, and we're in ignorance of it. And I think really that, that's interesting to me in this story. There's these two kings, the Syrian king and the king of Israel. <laughs> the Syrian king hears like, hey, there's, a, there's somebody in Israel that can help him. And he says, look, I'll write a letter. So he writes a letter to the king of Israel. The king of Israel gets it. And he says, oh, this man's just starting to fight. He's just being silly. He's saying, hey, I'm sending to you my most important officer. Cure him of leprosy. <laughs> and then the prophet Elijah hears. 
And he says, hey, what's, what's the big deal? Send him, to me. Send him to me. This little servant girl, she knew what kings didn't, didn't she? She knew that if only my master knew that there is a prophet of Yahweh. There's a prophet for Jehovah in Israel. And he can cure my master. This is nothing, not a big deal at all. He's cured other people of leprosy. If they'll just go to him and submit themselves to him. All these people who are trying to find a solution, but it's too elusive for them. The problem is too deep for human solutions, right? And you think, yeah, we know this, but, but do we really understand this? Because, I, you know, I've told you this before. There's a passage in Galatians that says, when the, fullness of time have, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were born under the law. I've told you why I believe that, that God waited so long before sending Jesus into the world. You know why I think he did? Because we needed to wait a few thousand years to just see how helpless and hopeless we were. We had had some of the best and the brightest thinkers, hadn't we? Politicians, religious leaders, all these ideologies, political activism. And are we better for it? Did we find a cure for the problem that's eluding so many thinkers? No. Even Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said, where are your, where are your uh, mighty thinkers at? Where are all your problem solvers? Where are the wise men at? They've all came and they've offered you nothing. And that's the same idea in this passage. Many, if not most people, will miss this cure because we're so drunk with our, with our own self-importance. We don't have time for solutions. This little girl, unnoticed, unimportant, poor, a foreigner, a female, a slave, a captive, an Israelite, an enemy. Isn't that ironic? And she knows about the cure. The paradox and it's not in the palace. You know what's interesting, isn't it? That Naaman pulls up to the palace. He has all his horses and his chariots and his money. And the king goes, I can't help you. I can't do anything for you. There's no cure here. It's not in the palace. It's in the kitchen where, where, the, where the servant maiden was, the slave girl. She knew. She knew where the answer was. Salvation sometimes comes from stables and from kitchens. Isn't, isn't that amazing? When we celebrate at Christmas the incarnation, the greatest act apart from the cross and resurrection that the world has ever seen, and there's only shepherds and a few wise men who are there to celebrate it. Well, let's, let's finish up here. Point number four, the gospel is offensive, isn't it? Sin ruins everything. Sin levels everyone. Most people will remain in ignorance when a cure does exist, but the cure, here's the thing, the cure is outrageously offensive to people. It's outrageously offensive to people. It's scandalous. It's what we've been talking about in Romans. See, this is just an illustration from the Old Testament of what Paul has told us. So many people stumble over the stumbling block. So check this out. Imagine, picture this, okay? Naaman pulls up to the palace and the king says, I can't save you, I can't fix you. And then Elijah hears and he says, send him to me. I can help. So he pulls up with his entourage, this mighty man from Syria, this commander of the legions of the army of Syria. He pulls up wearing his shiny armor, all of his badges. Maybe he has his trophies in his chariot, I don't know. And he's got all his horses. And he goes and he knocks on the door of Elijah. We'll pick up the story here. In verse... Eight, when Elijah, the man of God, 
heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the door of Elijah's house and Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was what? He was furious. He was angry. And he went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me. This is in Hebrew. It says, I thought he would come out to me. And that's emphatic. I thought he would come out to me. To me, I'm somebody. I thought surely this, this rank Israelite, this prophet, this servant, he would come out to me and surely he would make a big deal. Surely he would come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and he went away in a rage. Two different times that word, rage and anger. Man, he's offended. Why? Because the prophet didn't even get out of his chair. <laughs> he's like, I'm studying. Here, here's a sticky note. Go tell him, uh, go wash in the Jordan seven times. And the Jordan, the Jordan was a filthy river. Can you imagine that? You're this mighty man of valor, but you've got leprosy. And this prophet, this no-name prophet, won't even come out of his study in his mud hut. He sends you his lackey with a sticky note, and it says, go wash in the Jordan. And you're like, what the heck is going on here? And he's like, oh, you're nobody important. You're nobody special. God's not impressed with you. He's not impressed with your little chariots and your horses and all your accolades and your last name or your station in life. That does not impress him at all. The things that are highly esteemed, the Bible says in Luke 15, are an abomination to God. This cure was offensive to him. And look, it's interesting, man. His servants have to talk him into it. Let's pick up again in verse 13. But his servants came near and they said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? You hear what they're saying? They're like, what? Did he actually just tell you all you have to do to be rid of your leprosy is to just go and dunk yourself in the Jordan? That's actually what he said and you're angry? Do it. Can you imagine you're dying? You have a lethal disease. You're vile and disgusting. Your body parts are falling off of you. Your hair's falling out. You can't even be of active service to the king anymore. And this prophet who's healed many people tells you, hey, go wash in the Jordan and you'll be cured. And you're angry. How ridiculous is that? Well, how ridiculous is it that people are offended at grace? Have you ever thought about that? That's the most offensive thing in the world. Why? Because it tells them, God's not impressed with you. You're sick. You're a sinner. You're broken. You're hopeless. And the only thing that can help you is acknowledging that and surrendering to the Lordship of Christ and saying, pardon me, cleanse me, cover me, atone for me, change me because I'm helpless. And that's the one thing, ladies and gentlemen, that people are utterly unwilling to do. They're too refined and cultured and important. I'm somebody. I thought surely the prophet would come out and say, Naaman, oh my goodness. I'm so blessed today that Naaman would come into Israel and grace my house. No, he doesn't. He says, just another sinner that needs God's grace. Go dip in the Jordan seven times. The gospel is outrageously offensive. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about Naaman. He said, look at this man Naaman. Here he is, a leper. He cannot cure himself. 
The physicians, the wise men, the astrologers cannot cure him. The kings cannot cure him. And yet, look at the fool. What else can you call him? Though he is helpless and hopeless as a leper, and everybody can do nothing for him, he is fool enough to criticize what Elijah does. He is a fool. And I prayed as I came here this morning, Lord, if there's somebody watching from home, or there's somebody sitting here, and you've never really confronted this problem that you have, this leprosy of the soul, sin that clings so tightly to you, I pray you would open their eyes, Lord. They would see I've been a fool because here all along was this cure. Christ says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are sick. He said, I didn't call. I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. I came to call the unrighteous. I didn't come to call those who are well and have no need of a physician. I come to call those who are sick. That's why we do that welcome every Sunday. All you who are restless and mourning and hungering and thirsting and broken and sinful and weak and you failed. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you're on the verge of insanity. Maybe you're ready to end it all. Maybe no other place you've looked. Every other elusive, idyllic, exotic place you've went looking. Every relationship, every job, every place. Maybe you've moved or whatever. Change your name. You still got that thing with you. Don't be a fool, ladies and gentlemen. Christ says, all who come to me, I will give rest for their souls. Man, the Bible has us pegged, doesn't it? Isn't that what we're all looking for and we haven't been able to find down here with our resources that we have? We can't find rest. No politician can give you rest for your soul. No ideology or worldview outside of Christianity can satisfy the longing that you have, the yearning that you have for this peace in your heart and forgiveness and cleansing and change. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel boasts the power to be able to do that. And it happens to be outrageously offensive to people who have refined sensibilities and taste. Have you ever faced your attitude toward God? The main subject of preaching is to show men and women their true need for Jesus. I hope we feel that very deep. And if you're a Christian, this message is still for you. Feel your need anew and afresh this morning and come back to Jesus again and again. Lord, cover me and cleanse me and fill me with that hope that's just so elusive when I'm looking for it in other places. The gospel is powerful to transform us and to cleanse us, to purify and purge us, to unshackle us. Naaman comes proud, but he leaves humble, doesn't he? I love you. Have you ever heard that saying, that's as smooth as a baby's behind? Have you ever heard that? You know where that comes from, this passage? He came up out of the Jordan on the seventh dunk, and behold, his skin was as smooth as a baby's behind. That's what it says. That's my Tommy Hebrew uh, rendering, okay? He was cleansed. All the pictures I've seen and all the descriptions I've read in ancient Israel of leprosy, I would have liked to have been there when he came up out of the river and looked at himself. That would have been something to see. He had hair. He had smooth skin. His fingers grew back. His toes grew back. His crooked, deformed, twisted frame was made erect and new. He had clean. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how happy he would have been coming, out, coming up out of that river looking at himself? And then you know what he wanted to do? He went straight back to Naaman and what did he want to do? Pay him. Now as a preacher, I struggle with this. No, I'm kidding. He wanted, it says that he offered, you know how much money he offered this prophet for healing him? It would have been the same amount of money for 600 hired day laborers, their salary for a year. 600 of them. So, somebody do the math for me. That's a lot of money. And you know what Elijah said? He said, far be it for me to take your money. Now, I, I, want, 
I want Naaman to go back to the king of Syria and all his subjects and say the only thing, the only thing that Yahweh of Israel took from me was my leprosy. He didn't take anything else. He didn't need my money. He wouldn't accept payment. It's free. It's free. The grace of God is free, but it's very costly to Jesus, isn't it? It cost him everything and it cost you nothing except whatever false identity you're clinging to. Because before Jesus sets you free, you got to confess the lies that you've been held captive by. That's what this story is about. And that's the message that Grace Life has. Listen, guys, we're all just like, there's only two places you can find yourself in this story. Well, maybe three. Naaman before his leprosy was cured, or Naaman after his leprosy was cured. And then hopefully you'll find yourself in the same position as that servant girl. We live in a world that's offended, outrageously offended because of our message. They're unsympathetic to our worldview. They're growing more and more hostile. And I could preach a whole angry sermon and slam my fist on the pulpit and talk about how bad it is out there. But you know what? I want to be like that servant girl. I want to see the troubled, broken, weak, jaded, wrecked people in this world and say, Hey, I know a cure. I know a cure. If only you knew my master. If only you knew my master. I love it in this passage when Naaman went back and told the king of Syria, he said, hey, there's this girl, and she says thus and thus. <laughs> That's the gospel, isn't it? To the world, thus and thus. I want us to be able to, to do the same thing that that girl, to find the outsiders, instead of saying, hey, you know what? You got leprosy? Good. For what you're doing to me, I hope you rot. To say, no, you, you can be cured. You can be changed. Jesus can change you. He can fix you. He can cleanse you. And it cost him everything. And that's what we celebrate every first Sunday at Grace Life with communion. So let's, let's pause there and prepare our hearts. And I want to invite the servers to come down. And if you have children who are in the back who have repented of their sins and trusted Jesus and you want to go and grab them and have them celebrate communion with you, then by all means do that. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for the power and the beauty of this story in this passage. If I've said anything misleading or embellished, Lord, I pray you would remove it from our minds and hearts. To me, I see this as just a picture of the cleansing, atoning power of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we are all just like Naaman. We're hopeless, we're helpless, we're incurable, but there is a God in Israel who has a cure. Thank you, Lord, for sending that cure. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for receiving us, Lord. We have nothing to offer you except our sin sickness. And you received us and you changed us and you cleansed us and pardoned us, Lord. And you turned us into agents, evangelists, heralders, Lord, who, who have this message and take it to a world that's broken and in desperate need. I pray that as we come to your table this morning, we can remember what that cure cost you, God. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.